The programme which follows is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. Good afternoon, you are listening to Isotopica here on Resonance 104.4 FM with me, resident find artist and sonic detourist Simon Tishko. This week on my detour show, um, first of all I'm just going to go back to last week and explain because a couple of people asked me, I, I have my Foul Britannia episode, it was looking at anti-fascism we had the turkey song from Lucian in America who was playing the drums and singing to some turkeys to start the show and it set the theme and it was the theme I was talking about this country as I feel about it at the moment Foul Britannia also going back to the turkey theme it all fits if you see what I mean boom boom all the jokes um I rambled on gave a little political rant but I didn't actually explain what I meant by turkeys being the theme and I think living in a neoliberal economy, living in this post-Thatcherite, uh, condemn, uh, awful coalition of a government time, uh, post-financial crash, neoliberalism, which is any economist, any historian, any strategist, anyone who knows anything will tell you, is basically neoliberal economic policies have caused the most enormous crash. and instead of rejecting that it it's being further embraced it's it's more of the same please more of the same everybody um instead of punishing the bankers we're being told to blame the immigrants and the poor are being turned against the war benefit street on channel four uh, what what an absolute i was going to say the word abortion but i won't but an abortion of a program that any TV broadcaster in this country would just do that, turning poor against the poor, where we are living in a kleptocracy, we know that, in every way you turn, corporations, governments, whatever, are attempting to steal, they are stealing, they are taking away. So, where did I get to turkeys? How did I get to turkeys? Not talking about the country, but the simple analogy of everyone seems so happy and they're applauding this, and it's very much like a farm full of battery turkeys getting really excited and going, it's going to be Christmas soon. It's a really simple analogy. That's my foul Britannia. Anyhow, I'm going to go away from that this week a little bit. Um, this week's a very simple show. There's just going to be some really nice sounds. There's a rare interview with Eddie Sedgwick taking us back to the 1960s, which is a very interesting time. And... As we all know, I have a theory, I've got many theories, but one of my theories is that very much the neoliberal reaction, the reactionary neoliberal world we live in today, is still reverberating and reacting against the explosion of self-expression and liberalism, freedom that appeared in the 1960s this sort of, sort of radical shift to the left perhaps and I'm not sure how many of you know about the political compass but it's an interesting very simple sort of benchmark political questionnaire it's really worth looking up it's politicalcompass.org and you go there you answer fairly standard questions and it will place your spot somewhere on a left-right authoritarian libertarian axis so rather than simple left or right it's it's got a further dimension to it and what's interesting is once you've done the who am i questions you can compare your spot to where famous people from history various other people that you might know of and also various governments in the world and if we're looking at europe at the moment i'm looking at chart on political compass right now and all of the governments are firmly this is all the ec governments are very firmly 
um, to the far right on the chart and to the top. So we're talking about authoritarian right-wing governments, with Britain being about as close as you can get to the far right, very much in a place where the National Socialists, better known as the Nazis, used to be. And it's, it's a very easy theme and a very easy series of comparisons to make when you listen to the language of the coalition of neoliberalism. is very similar to the language of the National Socialists. Um, at the moment, I've been reading part of a, a series of research for a project, um, Naomi Klein's Shock Doctrine, something I'm sure many of you will be aware of. And it's the utter calculating... Um, exploitation of disaster and the desire for disaster um, she puts it very very well she makes a very very convincing case and it's often been said if you believe in all the conspiracies you're kind of crazy but if you don't believe in any conspiracies then you really are deluded let's face it this week's show I'm going to detour as I said through Eddie Sedgwick um, a really rare interview that I managed to find in some archives of her um, talking about her medical condition and LSD, something quite close to everyone's heart here on Resonance 104.4 FM. You're listening to a radio station. And um, I'll go through, I shall detour through various world sounds, sound artists and bits and pieces of music but I'm getting off to a very slow start this year with Isotopica it's 2014, it's still January and I have not been so broke in 10,000 years it feels um, yeah I'm putting out an appeal for cat food here at the moment there's two starving cats back in my house and, and one of them's going to go if I may feed one to the other, it's that bad Meaning it's very difficult to concentrate or give the number of hours I want to and spend the time I need to give to building the episodes of Isotopica, which kind of brings us around to another thing, which is fundraising. We're coming up to the fundraising week at Resonance FM, and I've been being applying myself to that, both for Resonance FM and my own survival. I'm a fine artist. I don't have a major gallery. I sell my work for lots of money occasionally, but it's been a long time since I've had shows that have actually sold any work, and the work is better than it's ever been, I have to say. So, starving artists, what boring old trope, but there's something in there. So, for Resonance, for Isotopica, and for anyone that's listening to this, I can point you to my website being www.theculture.net. If you follow the links to Resonance, follow the links to radio and broadcasts, and there is a button there that takes you to a page that's all about making donations to both Isotopica and Resonance FM as a radio station. I'd like you to have a look at that, like consider some options and maybe do that. At the same time, why don't we just pin back our ears and listen to Eddie Sedgwick? Back in the good old days. Were they the good old days? I don't know. Dr. Bishop, my methadrine supplier and vitamin fixer, committed me to the care of a Dr. Cock, who was a homosexual who worked at Gracie Square, which was a private mental hospital. And I was there for five months. Then I ran away with another patient. <laughs> and someone who was still in the hospital gave us the key to his apartment. And um, even though they weren't giving me hard barbiturates, they were giving me Placidil, which is a hypnotic and very addictive. And I didn't have any pills, so I was kind of ravaging around. And I went to see a doctor who is a gynecologist and a pretty well-off one. He said, how would I like to shoot up some acid with him? And this is really mind-blowing. A new doctor, I had never met him before. I just got his name from a friend of mine. 
I used to get my drugs from another gynecologist, but since I was committed to Gracie Square, I couldn't get any of my old connections to give me anything. I hadn't had that much experience with acid, but I had hard drug experience, and I wasn't afraid. So he um, closed up his office at five, and we took off in his Aston Martin and drove up the coast, or up the, I'm not sure exactly where we headed. Uh, I think it was up, um, what's the name of that river that, the Hudson, yeah. And we stopped at a motel, and he gave me three ampules of liquid Sandoz acid, intravenously, mainlining. And he gave himself the same amount, and he completely flipped. I was hallucinating and explaining to him. You know, I'd say, I see rich embroidered curtains, and I see people moving in the background. And, but I realized I was hallucinating, and he believed we were in the Middle Ages and that I was a, a, some kind of a princess. And he was some sort of royalty. And we made love from about five in the afternoon till seven in the morning with ecstatic climax after climax and just going insane until he realized it was seven and he had to get to his office at 8.30. And so he gave me a shot to calm me down and I took about 14 Placidil because I was so stoned. I, I couldn't come down. I was afraid I, I had overdone it. And on the way back, he straightened out very well and I, I just something very strange happened. I, I didn't realize I was going to say it. And I said out loud, I wish I was dead. And the, the reason I said it was the love and the beauty and the ecstasy of the whole experience was really uh, an alien an alien experience in a way because I didn't even know him. It was a one-night jag. Um, he was married and had children, and, and I just felt really, like, lost. It just wasn't worth living anymore, because I was all alone again. And he dropped me off at this apartment where I was staying with this other patient, a 20-year-old junkie from the age of 9 to 20. He, been a heroin addict and he was pretty emotionally retarded and he was staying there and I came in and talked to him. I had a Bloody Mary. I dropped a few more Placidil and with my tolerance I shouldn't have had this happen but I went into a coma. My eyes just rolled back in my head and an aide who worked at Gracie Square who was a good friend, he called and said he was coming over and then during the interim period while he was on his way over I went into a coma and when he got there this heroin addict and this aide from the hospital tried to wake me up and then they lifted my eyelids and my eyes were rolled back in my head and they slapped me and pumped my chest and put me in ice water and bathtub and called several hospitals telling them I was in a coma. And they said to let me sleep it off. Franco, the age, just flipped. He said, you know, I was dying, and he was right. So he called Lenox Hill. The police came, and um, they were all taken into custody, and I was rushed to the hospital. And, um... I was declared dead and my mother was called and then bam, I start breathing again. And uh, I felt pretty shaken up by what had happened because I didn't understand how I could have gone out on just oh, 15 Placidil when I used to live on 35 three grain two and all a day, plus alcohol. But um, nevertheless, this happened.
How do you know when you're finished with a painting? How do you know when you're finished making love? Famous yogurt he was, great friend of the family. One day, to prove mind over matter, he was wrapped up in a sheet, chained up so that he couldn't possibly move, placed into a lead box which was lowered into a hole 12 foot deep. The hole was filled by experts and 125 ton rock placed on top of it. He had no food, no water and no air and he stayed like that for six weeks. And when they finally dug him out, to everybody's amazement, he was stone dead.
그렇게 본인에서 오지. 아이 Infections may be classified according to the source of the bacteria responsible into self-infections and cross-infections. In this diagram, the sources of self-infection are shown on the left. They are the nose and throat and skin and clothing of the patient himself. The sources of cross-infection are shown on the right. The infected wounds of other patients and the hands, instruments, nose and throat of the nurses and doctor. The bacteria may be transferred to the wound directly by contact with fingers, instruments and so forth, or by droplets sprayed from the mouth, or they may first contaminate the air or dust, which then infects the wound. The risk of infection by direct transfer is great with all sorts of wounds, but the risk of airborne infection varies according to the size of the wound and the length of time for which it is exposed. For small wounds which do not take long to dress, the risk of airborne infection is not very great, and it's justifiable to limit the precautions against it to providing good ventilation and avoiding the dispersal of clouds of dust from the floor or from the dressings. So for small wounds, the emphasis is placed on the risk of contact infections. And these can be prevented by a good aseptic dressing technique. The principles of an aseptic dressing technique are the same wherever they are carried out, whether by a team of nurses working together or by one nurse working alone. Before each dressing, the nurse wipes the table with a disinfectant mop to remove any bacteria that may have fallen onto it, and then dries it. She then cuts the bandages using scissors kept for this purpose in a jar of disinfectant. She removes all but the inner dressing from the wound and discards the soiled material into a deep bin. Her hands may now be contaminated with bacteria from the bandages, so before getting clean material, she washes. This wash is simply to remove any bits of infected dust or fluff that might fall onto clean material. It does not sterilize her hands, but since they never come into contact with the wound, complete sterility is not necessary. 
Her hands must be dried to prevent any drops of water getting into the wound. She collects the dressing material into a sterile bowl. Two pairs of dressing forceps, dry wool, mops ready moistened with the cleansing solution, and plenty of dry gauze. The clean material is kept in lidded jars so that no dust can fall on it. The treatment and dressing of the wound is carried out with a strict non-touch technique. Notice that with two pairs of forceps, one can be used to steady the patient's finger while the wound treatment is being carried out with the other. The new gauze dressing is put on, covered with another larger piece of gauze, and then the wound is bandaged firmly. Note that the scissors are always kept in disinfectant. The used bowl and forceps are put into the sterilizer for their two minutes boiling and the nurse washes her hands. If during a dressing more material is needed, she must wash her hands before collecting it from the stock table. Where there are large numbers of patients with wounds to be dressed, a specialization of staff and space may be necessary. You'll see how this plan works at the Birmingham Accident Hospital. The dressing station consists of an inspection room and three dressing rooms. This model shows the general layout. On the left is the inspection room, and on the right, one of the three dressing rooms. The station has been designed to facilitate the flow of patients with a minimum loss of time. Patients come from the waiting hall to the inspection room, which accommodates two patients at a time. One can be seen by the doctor, while the other has his dressing removed. After inspection, the patient goes to one of the dressing rooms for treatment. As a doctor can inspect in one minute a wound that takes six to dress, it's convenient to separate the dressing room from the inspection room. It was found necessary to have more than one dressing room to absorb the flow of patients from the inspection room. As the inspection room accommodates two patients, there is a set of sinks and sterilizers on each side of the room. There's also a wash basin at the back for the doctor. In this way, there's no cross-traffic for the supply of sterile materials, and everyone works conveniently near a sink or wash basin. The staff of the room comprises the doctor and his secretary, two nurses whose job it is to expose the wound and later to apply the temporary dressing, and outside the low walls, two servers who keep the dressers supplied with sterile instruments and dressing material. The first patient to come in has a superficial burn of the leg. His foot is placed on a stainless steel rest, designed so that its top can be taken off for sterilizing. Not all the patients who come to the dressing station have to have their wounds inspected at each visit, so the first thing the doctor does when the patient arrives is to glance at his notes and then tell the nurse whether she should remove the dressings. The patient at the far side of the table has now been seen by the doctor and goes to the dressing room for treatment while another patient takes her place.
After the nurse has removed the bandages, she follows a careful no-touch technique in removing the inner dressings. All soiled material is placed in a kidney dish which is immediately emptied into a special bin. The doctor then inspects the wound. Whenever possible he uses forceps rather than fingers because if he touches the limb with his fingers he will have to wash. While the nurse applies a temporary cover to the wound the doctor dictates notes to his secretary and prescribes treatment. He also makes a note of the treatment on a slip of paper which he gives to the patient to take to the nurse in the dressing room. As soon as the patient goes out, the nurse takes the limb rest away to be sterilized. Meanwhile, on the other side of the table, the nurse has already started to remove the dressings from the next patient. Notice in the background the two openings between the dressing nurse and the server. Against the side wall is a slab on which the clean material is stored. Below it is the discard bin, and in the center is the hatch where dirty instruments are passed out to the server. In this case, the doctor has to touch the patient's hand to make an adequate inspection of the wound. Even if he touches the skin some distance from the wound, he must afterwards wash his hands. The nurse is collecting the materials for a temporary wound cover from the sterile stock and while she applies this to the wound, the doctor finishes dictating progress notes to the secretary, taking care not to touch anything with his left hand until he's washed. nurse returns the soiled instruments to the server and washes and dries her hands. The server cleans the instruments at the sink below the hatch, puts them in the sterilizer and then washes her hands. In this way she maintains a flow of clean instruments for the dresser. As before, the doctor writes the patient's treatment on a slip of paper and gives it to the patient to take to the dressing room down the corridor. Before we follow this patient through the dressing room, notice the arrangement of the room as shown in this model. There's space for two patients to be dressed at a time. The staff of each dressing room comprises two dressers, one for each patient, a server who provides the material for both dressers, and a runner who is responsible for removing the patient's temporary dressings and for sterilizing instruments and bowls. Near the center of the room is the server's stock table. Immediately behind is the sterilizer with a sink on either side, and on each side wall is a wash basin for the dressers to use. There's a curtain separating the two patients' chairs and on each side there is a deep bin for the soiled dressings and a limb rest with a top that can be taken off for sterilizing. Mm -hmm. 
The nurse has just finished a dressing, and as the patient goes out, she washes her hands at the side basin, while the runner replaces the contaminated hand rest with a clean one. She washes the soiled rest at the back sink before she puts it in the sterilizer. When the dresser is ready, she beckons the next patient forward to his seat and the runner removes his temporary dressing using scissors kept in disinfectant. The dresser first has to see what treatment the doctor has prescribed. She then goes to the center table to collect the necessary material from the server. When there's a rapid flow of patients, small quantities of sterile material and lotions may be kept in open bowls on the table without undue risk. But these quantities must be small and should be replaced every 15 to 20 minutes. The dresser now carries out the wound treatment prescribed. Soiled mops are discarded directly into the bin beside the dressing table. Should she require extra material in the middle of a dressing, the server is there to give it to her. Unlike the nurse working alone, the dresser working with the server does not have to wash her hands before collecting it. The treatment completed, the wound is covered with several layers of gauze and a thick pad of wool which helps to keep bacteria from penetrating the wound from outside. Meanwhile, the runner removes the soil instruments for sterilizing and the nurse puts on a bandage. The dressing completed, the nurse washes again, while the runner cleans and sterilizes the used instrument in readiness for the next patient. As an example of the results observed, we may say that since the institution of this dressing routine, streptococcal cross-infection of small wounds has been reduced to one-fifteenth of what it was previously, from 8.3% to 0.6%. You have been listening to Isotopica here on Resonance 104.4 FM and Resonance FM is a radio station. Radio stations cost money and Resonance FM is miraculous and pure as the driven snow, as the dew on the dawn, lawn, dawn, is Resonance actually needs money. We need funding. Um, we're very generously supported by the Arts Council, but that is no sure thing. We'd like some help from the listeners, and Resonance is advert-free. It's kind of sponsorship-free. We've got no... What's the word? We've got no agenda, except to explore the boundaries and the limits 